Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 8 is our text that we are going to be studying. And this is a passage really on watchfulness. Watchfulness and the dangers that we face if and when we are not watchful. Uh, speaks of watchfulness, that we ought to be watchful, and also the things that we ought to be watchful for. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And that is the word of the living God for us. Let's pray together. Our great God, we come before your mighty word and we pray for you to speak to us and give us clarity from it. Bless us, we ask you, uh, and uh, shape us more into the likeness of your son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, um, notice here that Paul begins, again, as I mentioned uh, starting, Paul begins the text with, one of those commandments that when you, take, when you pay attention throughout Scripture is actually one of those commandments that is uh, constantly repeated throughout the Bible. And that is the commandment to beware. He says, see to it. See to it. Be watchful. Watchfulness is foundational to the Christian life. Did you know that? Watchfulness is foundational. Christians are called to be watchful people. In fact... If you think about it, it was a lack of watchfulness that led to the fall into sin in the first place. I want you to turn together with me to uh, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. And verse 15 there says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Uh, notice, by the way, um, I, I think we tend to assume that Adam was somehow created in Eden. That's not the case. It says God took him and put him there. God had created him somewhere else. He's placed in the garden. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 23, page over, it says there, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. You might say to cultivate the ground from which he was first taken. In other words, Adam ends up living and working in the place where he was first created. But that is after he's given a chance, so to speak, to stay in another place, in Eden. Eden, as you know, had been a paradise, paradise of God. Genesis uh, 3, you might remember, says that God walked in Eden freely in the cool of the day. And uh, Eden was his special dwelling place. And if you, you might remember, what was the role of Adam in Eden? In, in Eden? Well, you know, go back, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 2.15, it says he was to work it, right? Work Eden, keep it. Um, expand. The, 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 here is a garden where Adam is taken and placed and he's given to work that garden and spread the glory of the Lord on the earth, so to speak. That was his job, to spread the glory of the Lord, to work Eden out into the world, to keep it. To work, expand it, but also keep it, defend it, right? Did he do that? Well, no, because the serpent comes to deceive the woman. And instead of this is what Adam should have done when he encounters the serpent, should have crushed the head of the serpent. Doesn't do it. Instead, he allows Eve to be deceived and he takes the fruit with her. So as a result, we know the rest of the story. God banishes Adam and his wife from the presence of the Lord banishes him from Eden and puts him where he was first created, outside of paradise. So, what I want to draw for us this morning from 
this episode is that we need to be watchful. Watchful against Satan's devices. Second Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be sober of spirit or be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So be watchful. Now, of course, um, if we are going to be watchful against the devil and his devices, unlike Adam, we're also going to have to know how it is that the devil will come to us if he ever comes to us. Right? So how does the devil come to us? Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And there, Paul is defending himself, trying to protect the Corinthians against the false apostles who were coming to deceive him. And he says in verse 14, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So, what this passage says is that Satan, on the one hand, disguises himself as an angel of light, but on the other, he says that it says uh, that he's got some servants, right? And those servants themselves are appearing in the world as servants of righteousness. These are people who claim to have your well-being as their priority. They're going to help you get things right with God. In fact, this is why Matthew 7.15, the Lord Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Satan uses men and women who seem good. They seem to be out for your best interest. That's why, again, we're called to watchfulness, right? Uh, to be careful, to even test all things. First um, John 4. What does John say there? First John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then if you jump over to uh, 2 John. 2 John, 2 John 7. Uh, it's only one chapter. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a, a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. There it is, the commandment. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So, just to recap, Satan comes. Satan comes to you through servants who are themselves look, seem as though they were servants of righteousness. But when they do deceive men and women, they can only accomplish that because there's something in us that is, as it were, deceivable. Uh, Jesus says in, in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me, right? There is no way that Satan can get to me because there's nothing in me, a sin principle, whereby I may be carried away with him or, or to him or by him. Whereas we ourselves, we have a sin principle, original sin, right? And so that when the deceiver comes, he stirs up original sin in us so that we are already prone to be deceived. That's why Jane, James can say that it's not so much that, that um, we're carried away by Satan or external forces, but he says, let no one say when he's tempted... Uh, that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and, and enticed by his own lust. Right? There's a sense in which Satan's, Satan's is, is, is at fault in his own way, but we're always at fault in our own way because of our own sin nature. 
And he says, uh, verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the reality is that we have not only an enemy without, but we also have an enemy within. So when the scripture speaks of being watchful, you need to be watchful, you need to be careful. The Bible is not limiting itself to Satan or whatever instrument Satan might use to deceive us like false teachers, like what is whatever the world system he set up. No, but rather scripture also emphasizes the fact that we have to be watchful of our own selves. We have an enemy within our flesh. And, and in fact, let's turn back to the, uh, Deuteronomy 6. Because this begins very early in redemptive history when God begins to warn his people about the need to be watchful of themselves. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Great Shema. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Shema Yisrael Adonai, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your son and, or to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, that, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I, by the way, I, I just love this. You know, uh, would that God give us parents who raise children this way? All day long, we're standing. I'm teaching you about the Lord. We're walking. We're talking about spiritual things. We're sitting down. We're talking about the, the word of God. Would to God that our parents would be this way. Um, verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn sisters, cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And then um, he keeps going and says, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Here comes the, the consequences. If, if you don't watch yourself, you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. So, again, this is a passage on watch yourself, right? There's a sin principle in yourself that is liable, especially in the face of luxury and things are easy and, and the Lord has given you all these things to enjoy. And then all of a sudden you're caught in this situation where you're not watching yourself, you're led away. Um, let's turn over another passage on self-watching, if you might want to say that. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 42. There are so many of these parables that the Lord gives to his people on being ready, Right? Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, truly, or truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave 
says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. So notice, he, he's giving himself over to his own passions and his own desires, right? Uh, he's giving uh, himself over to violence, right? So a lack of self-control, uh, gluttony, vice, He's, he's drinking and getting drunk and, 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 and eating uh, to the point of gluttony. And then verse 50 says, The master of that slave will come on that day when he does not expect him. And at that hour, which he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the evil slave is the one who gives himself over to his own desires, according to this parable rather than wait for the return of his master faithfully. Um, what about also uh, in the next chapter over in, in Matthew 26, verse 41? This is in Gethsemane. You might remember, right? The Lord is asking for his, for his disciples to keep company with him in that evil hour. Which, by the way, shows you his true humanity. He is reaching out for human friends. Please be with me. And uh, verse 41, he says, uh, when he finds them that they had been falling asleep, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, again, we have to, be, we have to beware, right? Beware of the devil. Beware of the servants or through which the devil can get to us. Beware of the world system that the devil has set up to enslave us. Beware of our own selves, our own temptations. Otherwise, we incur great danger, right? And that's actually the second point that I want to take you to in our passage here in Colossians 2.8. So uh, Paul began by, by saying, beware, right? Uh, be diligent, be watchful. And then he's going to say, what is the danger that they are facing for not being watchful? And that is, simply put, captivity. Captivity. Colossians 2.8 again. See to it that no one takes you captive. The philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, that, that verb here in Colossians 2.8 that says to take captive... See to it that no one takes you captive. That verb in the Greek is a compound term with the words spoil and the verb to carry away. So the idea here is somebody who is kidnapping you and turning you into a slave, right? That's what took place in ancient times. Spoils of war not only included, you know, physical things, but also people. 1 Samuel 30 verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their own way. So, uh, again, you have this idea here that Paul is using a, a, a kind of metaphor saying that if you're... If you're not watchful, you're going to be kidnapped. You're going to be spiritually enslaved. And this is important because remember, Paul's speaking to the Colossians here, right? And they are in a church and there are false teachers going around. And they seemed to want to, want to do anything but to enslave them. Because again, they would have been as those who were dressed in garments of light, servants of righteousness. They were wearing sheep's clothing. But Paul is saying, by the way, I know that that sheep outfit looks pretty nice on that wolf. Uh, but this is actually an enemy combatant. This is one who is assaulting you with the intent of carrying you away. Of kidnapping you spiritually. Right? So, so the, then... The question follows, okay, so if I'm going to be kidnapped, if I'm going to be carried away, if I'm going to be held captive, what am I going to be held captive to? 
And the answer is, of course, sin. Sin. Proverbs 5.22. Look at that. Proverbs 5.22. It says there, His own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the courts of his sin. So sin is something which captures the sinner. In fact, I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. And verse 18 It says there, um, for, I think I, think I have the, the wrong, I, I think it's First Peter. No, I have, I have the wrong, I have the wrong um, reference here, but I, at least I have the text written down here. So here it is. Second uh, Peter, maybe it's a second Peter. Yeah, no, 2 Peter 2, 19. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Uh, speaking arrogant words, speak, uh, beginning in uh, verse 18, speaking of false, teacher, false teachers, speaking out uh, arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slave of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. He's actually t- uh, um, quoting Jesus in uh, John chapter 8, verse 34, who says, whatever overcomes a man by that, by, or whatever overcomes a man by that, he's enslaved. So the point is that sinner, uh, or sin itself is something that en- ensnares the sinner. He cannot... Get free from sin. False teachers who Peter is saying here, they themselves are slaves. They actually lead other people into bondage of sin. Why? Well, not only because sin makes you a certain servant of Satan, right? Once you are bound by sin, now you're bound to serve the devil himself. But the point uh, why uh, the devil wants to lead you into sin is, of course, because sin brings death and destruction. The devil hates God, and we are image bearers of God, so he is intent on destroying you. And so when he binds you into sin, and sin leads you into destruction, he is getting one up on the Lord. Proverbs 11.3 The crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. And Isaiah 128, rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So the danger for not being watchful against the devil in ourselves is actually being held captive, being held captive by the devil through sin, which brings about destruction. Now, the final question here has to do with how it is that Satan accomplishes his end how it is that he captures us so paul began by saying be watchful be diligent be careful then he gives us the the danger that we're running into which is captivity captivity to sin captivity to the devil and then now at the end of colossians 2 8 he tells us the means by which one is held captive he tells us the means by which satan ensnares us look at colossians 2 8 again See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So notice, Paul mentions three means by which men and women can be held captive. Here are three. The first one I would like to call false science. False science. False science. And I'm drawing this from the expression that he makes here, uh, where he says philosophy. Notice he says philosophy and empty deception. Now, the word philosophy, as you know, just means friend of wisdom or lover of wisdom. 
But, but even back then, in the, the times of the New Testament, there were a number of ways in which you could understand the word philosophy. If by philosophy we mean the use of reason to discover all that can be discovered from the natural realm, looking at nature, making deductions from nature, investigating nature, then if that is what he means by philosophy, then we cannot condemn philosophy. Otherwise, we might be even insulting God himself because God made the world and he made us to rational creatures who can reason through his world and understand and glorify him through that, through learning. Learning glorifies God. We are to exercise dominion over the world. So when, when you see technological advancement, not all technological advancement actually is helpful. Some can actually be enslaving. You, you do wonder how much your iPhone is actually enslaving you. Um, but there, uh, technology in itself is a good thing, right? So Paul can't be just broadly speaking, condemning the use of reason to accomplish the dominion that God himself has asked us to exercise over the world. And by the way, a lot of the Greek philosophers, we think immediately of philosophy, a lot of what they did actually stayed within the proper realm. For example, you think of Aristotle and the laws of logic, things that we still use, the principle of contradiction. Aristotle had a work on, uh, named The Categories in which he writes on how it is that we should be classifying words and terms, how terms relate to one another in sentences. Uh, he had an, another word called, uh, another book called Topics, in which he makes a difference between the different kinds of learning, inductive versus deductive methods. So those things, a lot of what they did were good in themselves, and Paul, I don't believe, is condemning that. But this is why he adds the phrase empty deception here. So he says philosophy and empty deception. You might even translate the Greek there as philosophy, comma, even empty deception. Or philosophy, comma, that is, comma, empty deception. So he's, classic, he, he, he's narrowing down what he means specifically here by Philosophy. He's talking about a specific form that philosophy had taken in the ancient world, and it was empty deception. Things that sounded good. Sounds very philosophical, very amazing, but it actually is just smoke. It's got nothing in it. Lies. So you say, okay, so what, what is that? What, what are we talking about precisely? What is the kind of philosophy, or, or at which point does philosophy... Turn into, turns into anti-deception. Well, simply put, as soon as you try to answer questions that only divine revelation can answer, then you've stepped out of bounds of philosophy, the proper bounds of philosophy. As soon as you assume that natural reason can answer spiritual questions or solve spiritual problems then you've left whatever help, uh, help the philosophy could have helped you with. As soon as you assume that natural reason, again, can answer questions about the worship of God and the salvation of men, then you've drifted into empty deception. And Greek philosophers did do that. They did. But even worse, even... Uh, the mystery religions around Colossae in the ancient world, when Paul was writing, there were all these mystery religions in Rome. When by that time, whenever you said the word philosophy in those contexts, it was a religious connotation purely. That's all they meant. They just meant questions about ultimate realities, where we come from, where are we going, how are we saved. They called that philosophy. And they were not the first ones to, as it were, go from the natural realm, good and proper, into the supernatural realm, improper. So, for example, um, you, when, you, you guys remember the Magi, right? The Magi that come to worship Jesus Christ when he's born. Well, that would have been a, a, a class of philosopher statesmen from mid, the Middle Persian Empire, 
And, and those were, when you read about these men, about this class of men, they were originally mathematicians, scientists, but eventually they begin to get into astrology and into the occult. Such that they leave all the natural, what you might term the natural sciences, math and things of this world, they eventually drift so far into the occult and astrology, so forth and so on, that their name becomes synonymous with occult, magic. They were no longer scientists. They were magicians. But they were just magi, right? But that's how we use the term to describe people who, uh, or, 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 or that, which is of, so that which is supernatural or the occult. And by the way, this is exactly what has happened with the term science, right? Science, much like philosopher, science at its core had everything to do with observation and analysis. We learned this in high school, right? Investigation of cause and effect. You can document, you have a hypothesis, you try your hypothesis, you prove your hypothesis, and you're good to go. That's not what science is anymore, is it? It's not about what you could see and test. Because as the West has apostatized and placed its trust in man and man's reasoning rather than in God, then man turns, into, man turns to science so that science can answer questions that it was never meant to answer. Just like the philosophers did. How did the universe come into being? Where do men come from? Those were questions that science was never meant to answer. How many times has the universe come into being? Just once. Can't have observation. You don't have things come popping out of nowhere, creation ex nihilo, every day, so that you can then make observations and create hypotheses. So they've turned into science for questions that science cannot ask. People believe that it is somehow scientific to go around saying that the universe just exploded into existence and that men came from monkeys. There's nothing really scientific about that if we go by science as it was originally intended to be. Here's another question. How is the world going to end? Well, scripture answers that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to burn the whole thing. But science so-called has a different answer. Climate change. And here's the application of, of climate change, right? If you're going to be righteous, you better recycle. <laughs> if you're going to be righteous, if you're a business owner, you better join the whatever organization we have where, where, where we are eco-friendly. And if you're a customer, then you need to buy from the company that is eco-friendly. And, and so... And so rather than thinking of how can I get right with the judge who's coming and destroying all things, I'm thinking how can I be righteous by treating the planet very well. So even now our culture has come to take science in a very religious kind of way. They expect science to answer questions about where we came from and even what is going to happen in the future. On the other hand, we also have turned to science to Try and solve sin problems. Sin problems. Think also of the world of psychology and psychiatry. And the so-called experts assume, again, wrongly, that you can solve spiritual problems through natural means. So you have people who are, in our culture, in a state, for example, of depression... You give them drugs. People who are anxious, you drug them up. Children who are very energetic and perhaps undisciplined, who need to be trained according to the scripture, you drug them up. I mean, nowadays there's a pill for everything, right? Because we've turned even every sin into psychological disorders. So, for example, uh, this is a big one. Slavery to physical substances, we call that what? 
Addiction. Addiction. Do you know addiction refers to a disease that you can't heal? But scripture speaks of it differently. It speaks of slavery from which you may be released and forgiven and freed. And again, delivered by the power of the Spirit. You also speak of effeminate tendencies, for example. Desire for a man to dress like a woman or a woman to act and dress like a man. And then we call that gender dysphoria. And we say that the, the, the solution here is let's mutilate your body, let's celebrate you, let's drug you up and let's destroy your life rather than what does God say about this? Where is repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ? Salvation, free salvation from sin. Again, sin problems solved through human thinking, human reasoning. But all of these things, this is why I said false science, they're, as Paul says here, empty deception. They lead even believers astray. Satan uses them to hold people captive. And they're not all. Beyond false science, Paul also talks about what you might call anti-biblical traditions. Notice he says, And see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. Now, I say anti-biblical traditions and not just tradition because tradition, as we know, is not inherently a bad thing. We all have traditions that we cherish. But oftentimes... Traditions can contradict the commandments of God. And of course, the quintessential example of that is in Matthew 15. We can go ahead and turn there. Matthew 15. The Lord Jesus is uh, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees here. Verse 3. He says, and he answered to them, why do, you yourselves, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I gave, whatever I have that would, that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the precepts of men. So in this case, here is a written tradition that conflicted with the biblical commandment. And rather than obeying scripture... The Pharisees and the scribes were obeying men. When those two things clashed, they went for man's tradition. They were letting other men determine what it is that they were going to believe and how it is that they were going to worship rather than God through his living, immutable, perfect word. And that means that at that point they had been taken captive. Of course, people still fall into this today all the time. You get convinced somehow, this is usually how it goes, you get convinced that scripture is just not clear enough. It cannot be understood. And so you have to have an outside source to help you have a grid through which you interpret the Bible. And all of a sudden you realize you're caught up in a system in which you can't tell the difference between the voice of man and the voice of the Lord. And so you obey the voice of man. You set your hope. In that case. You set your hope on man. Which is really. A, a, a sad and pitiful thing. Because trusting in man. Is a curse. Jeremiah 17.5. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. And makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then on the flip side, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. So you have to trust the Lord. 
How do you do that? Well, trust in his word, believe in his word. What he says there is true. He calls me to repent and believe in Christ and be saved. That is what will happen. He tells me that he will help me fight sin and to use the means available to me through his word to fight sin and he will help me. So the word should be the guide to our life. And by rejecting everything uh, that, that, that contradicts the word, we are being freed from any captivity that the devil might try to ensnare us with. So here are two things that we've gone over. So captivity, the, the means through which God, the, the means through which Satan tries to hold us captive, and that is number one, false science. Number two, anti-biblical traditions. And there's another one here, and that is religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. Colossians 2 verse 8, one last time. says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, to be sure, something that when uh, Paul speaks of the elementary principles of the world here, he is referring to the... The, the moon, the sun, the stars, because the Greeks in their writings used to refer to the heavenly bodies by that expression. Elementary principles of the world. However, if we're going to interpret scripture with scripture, which is the right way to do it, there is, you can't find any other passage where Paul uses that phrase, elementary principles of the world, to speak of the sun, and the moon, and the stars, etc., but we do have passages in, when, in which he speaks of that, he uses that phrase, elementary principles of the world, to describe the rituals that were contained in the law of Moses. The clearest of those is in Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. It says there, um, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not dip, differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Notice a slave. We're talking about someone, there's a, there's a child and a slave, a person who is captive. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage, slaves, under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, notice, Paul refers to the rights, he's speaking to those who were Jews, and he is speaking to the rights to which they were responsible to observe before Christ, the rights that Moses had given Israel, the sacrifices, the offerings, the festivals, the Sabbath. He speaks of those as elemental things of the world, or you might even translate that as Primary and fundamental principles. And you say, okay, so why is the law of Moses, the regulations and the sacrifices and whatever, what are those, why are those called elemental things of the world? Well, again, he hints at that himself here. He says that, that those who were under those things were as slaves, as captive people who were under guardians and managers. Uh, the point is that these things were elemental. They were for children. They were really difficult to keep. It was very annoying to uh, keep all those regulations from the Mosaic law. We, we heard just reading them. Imagine just living by all these laws that Israel was bound to. They felt like a yoke. They kept people in bondage. But that was a good thing. 
right? That was good, a good thing for a time. It was necessary for a time because the purpose of all of those rituals, ceremonies, that yoke was actually to point the Israelites to the fact that they needed a savior to come and break them from that bondage. They needed Christ. So as long as Christ had not come, those things were in place and they were serving a good purpose. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. He explains the same thing there. Beginning in verse 6. He says, now when these things have been so prepared, he's talking about there the... um, Ceremony, the ceremonies of the Mosaic administration. He says, The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not, uh, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Verse 8, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the Outer tabernacle is still standing, verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until a time of reformation. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. So, the point there that the writer of Hebrews is making is that this whole system was temporary. And it was, again, it was meant to show people in a carnal, visible way that they needed a Redeemer to bring them out of that kind of yoke, of that kind of bondage. And that Redeemer came, of course. So once he came, the system itself grew obsolete. It, it did its job. But the false teachers did not believe that, right? They wanted... A return to all the ceremonies. They wanted to go back to those things. Now, if you went back to those things, this is what the entire New Testament, all around it, all of these writers, from writer of Hebrews to Paul, every time he's talking to the Judaizers or mentioning the Judaizers who wanted to bring people back into the Mosaic Law, the point that you were making, if you went back to the Mosaic administration, is you were saying to God, You sent the Messiah and I did not like him. You got it wrong. Right? Let's pretend as though he never came. That was always a problem. This is why the apostles are so strong about don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to the ceremonies. Don't do it. Because you're you're rejecting Christ if you do that. But the question is why... Did people want to do this? Why were they still tempted to go back and fall into those ceremonies again? Well, because when you focus on external things only, uh, it gives you a sense of religious accomplishment, right? And that distracts you from heart obedience. The things that we really do need to be focusing on, right? Uh, Because I already got my fix of religion. I did what I had to do. And therefore, it doesn't matter that I still have this area in my life that is not submitted to Christ. It doesn't matter because I'm doing all these other things on this side. But that is a form of hypocrisy. And people still fall for these things, of course. They make up their own worship. They make church, even churches, right? Um, All about Intense experiences and loud sounds. It's a carnal experience that give, gives people a false sense of religious accomplishment. 
religious feeling. And that distracts from the real problem. The real problem is you need forgiveness. You need grace. You are a lawbreaker. And God wants repentance. God wants for you to conform your life to his perfect law. Of course, to have free salvation in Jesus Christ who bled and died for sinners at the cross and offers for salvation for free to all who come to him. And through his power, once we have received that gift, then we can get into the business of, I love your law. I want to obey God. Help me. But to do that rather than go into some false religious hypocrisy that makes me feel good, but there is no actual change. There is only sin. But again, this religious hypocrisy is one of the means by which the devil takes you captive. So Paul is saying, don't let, on the one hand, false science. Don't let anti-biblical traditions. Don't let religious hypocrisy be the snares through which Satan binds you. Don't let them be the cords by which you are led away from Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness and his help. He alone, Jesus Christ alone, gives true knowledge of God and of all reality. So you don't need false science. He alone enables true worship. So you don't need all those bad traditions that contradict the scriptures. He alone provides perfect righteousness and help to all those who believe. So you don't need religious hypocrisy. He is a help in times of trouble. And it's through him that we please God. So the call here from Paul is to always be on the alert. The danger is, again, captivity, either to eternal destruction for the unbeliever, captivity, Bind, be, being bound until you're in hell. Or in the case of someone who is a Christian, who is held captive, the danger then is a loss of freedom and joy and usefulness in the Lord. But the means by which Satan takes us, again, includes a whole host of trappings. Twisted human knowledge, and I rely upon human knowledge, perverse human customs that contradict the law of God, crooked human worship that denies Christ himself. And we think to ourselves, wow, the dangers are so many, so difficult to be watchful and to not be held captive. And really, I would say it's impossible if we do it on our own. But the Lord Jesus, of course, he is the one who is able to keep us free. He's, a, he's gave us, he's the Lord of liberty. He's able to help us stay in the road of liberty and in a state of freedom. That's why Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm.